Hello, and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Sarah Hoffman, the Public Information Officer for the ACFE, and I'm joined today by Amber Mack, entrepreneur, best-selling author, blogger, and TV and radio host. Amber will also be a featured keynote speaker at the 2017 ACFE Fraud Conference Canada this October in Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us today, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. Diving right in, on one of the latest episodes of your podcast, The Feed, you discussed how technology has been revolutionizing banking, including the movement of cards and cash to more of a mobile system. This seems exciting from a convenience standpoint for regular people, but what types of risks, and especially fraud risks, do you think that this move might open consumers up to? You're absolutely right. We recently discussed uh, the end of cash, and I think this is something that for quite a few years, many of the financial institutions have been talking about the end of cash, but unfortunately, the technology hasn't necessarily caught up until now. But now, however, we're seeing that more and more people are using mobile banking tools. In fact, the Federal Reserve just did a study where they found out that 67% of millennials actually use mobile banking. So we know, especially with the younger generation, that they're choosing to do all of their banking on mobile devices. Of course, this does potentially expose them to issues when it comes to fraud, and I think really this becomes a situation where it's more about the awareness and the education that some of these financial institutions need to do in terms of educating the consumers about how to be safe when they're doing their mobile banking, because at this point, I'm concerned that there's no turning back. We know that this is the future. We know that cash isn't going to make a comeback, so really we have the big task of educating the end consumer. Yeah. Have you seen any examples in uh, Canada or really anywhere of where you've seen banks do a really good job educating consumers? So uh, I do work with one financial institution called Scotiabank, and uh, they do a lot of work in terms of educating end consumers and just really teaching consumers how to stay safe when it comes to using their mobile apps and doing financial uh, transactions on mobile devices. And I think for more, more and more people, it really becomes a situation where that education has to happen in a form where the consumers actually are. Uh, with Scotiabank, for example, they do a lot when it comes to social media and educating within those forms through short-form content, through video content, and really reaching out to the end consumer to really teach them how to use some of these tools and technologies in a way where they won't potentially be exposed to any fraud risks. Yeah, I really hope that as we see everything move in that direction, we see more banks, like it sounds like Scotiabank's doing a great job with bringing that, uh, that education to people. Absolutely. And and I think as we think about the future of being able to do all types of banking, I mean, most financial institutions are heading in this direction when it comes to using mobile technology specifically, whether you're taking a picture and depositing a check or if you're doing uh, banking quickly on your phone or checking your balance, whatever it might be, the financial institutions really are in a race right now to be the first to come out with some of these new technologies and tools and uh, at the same time, obviously mitigating risk. Like many millennials do a lot of my banking on mobile, and I always try and be cognizant of if my phone has automatically connected to a public Wi-Fi or something and being really cognizant of that because I feel like that's one of those things that people are learning more about and being more aware of, but it's not quite at the level that a lot of people know. I know, uh, I believe it was a couple of years ago, there was a big data breach of Starwood Hotels, I think, and they had found that the hackers actually hacked into the lobby Wi-Fi and were stealing people's information that way, I believe. And it's really interesting, I think, when you see how comfortable people are with using public Wi-Fi. Everybody wants to save on their data charges at the end of the month with the telco that they're using. But I think what we recognize is that there are just so many risks 
with using public Wi-Fi, especially when you're talking about things such as secure transactions. And that would be my first tip for people out there who are doing any type of banking is to ensure that you're doing it on a secure network, either in your home. And at a last for a last resort, if you need to do banking on the go, you're better off just using your SIM card for your connection versus uh, hooking up to a uh, public Wi-Fi access point. Switching over to the Internet of Things, it's a really hot topic right now, and it affects more people probably than they realize. You know, if you go out and buy, you know, a brand new coffee maker and you have the ability to set the time that the coffee is going to be ready from your bed or the night before, you might not realize that that's using a network or Wi-Fi. What are some of the benefits, to do you think, in this new interconnected world? But also, what are some areas that might be cause for concern it's a great question because uh, I know this is the topic that I'm going to really focus in on at the conference uh, in Toronto. And when we're talking about the Internet of Things, uh, just to throw some stats at you, we know by 2020 uh, that the average person will own about 50 Internet-connected devices. And and people kind of uh, uh, can't believe that this high of a number. They think, oh, that's not even possible. But if you think about all those things you connect to the Internet, whether it's your, your tablet, your smartphone, door locks, refrigerators, uh, the list of items goes on and on in terms of what's available. Just this weekend, I got a new refrigerator, and uh, it has Wi-Fi capabilities and a coffee maker built into it. So you can see from uh, that perspective, there are more and more tools that allow us to be more productive. Um, Voice assistants are another great example. If you look at something like Google Home or Amazon Alexa, we see that the future of the voice is the way that many people are interacting uh, in their home in terms of being able to call up information or order things from Amazon just by using their voice. So there's a lot of reason to want some of these products in terms of the simplicity of these products and how they help you save time. But of course, all of a sudden, this opens up the potential uh, for hackers to get into your system because instead of just having a computer or a smartphone, we're talking, again, dozens and dozens of different devices. How can people protect themselves from hackers getting in through, for instance, your new smart refrigerator? Is it up to the consumer, do you think, to install, or can they even install like a firewall, or is it their own network security? And do you think that the manufacturers of these devices have any responsibility, or are they doing enough currently for security already built in? One of the problems when you start to dive into the Internet of Things is that you notice very quickly that there are literally hundreds of companies that are operating in this space coming up, coming out with new gadgets for the home. And so when we have so many companies, we really see that everything has become decentralized. You know, not all of those products are operating on the same platforms using the same software. So it becomes more and more difficult for an end user to understand how to protect themselves. They're not just talking about using a secure browser on their computer. Again, they're talking about how do I protect these dozens of devices in my home. I guess on the flip side of that, the good news is that there are products out there in the form of uh, routers that are actually taking on the task of protecting homes that are smart homes. So literally every device that is connected to the router, since these are all smart products, they're all connected to the internet through the router, but these devices act as sort of this additional layer, and they have software that allow you to manage all the different devices and the security of those devices. So they manage and monitor the traffic that's coming in and out of your house, and then you're able to essentially quarantine if there's an issue uh, with one of the products that could be hacked. They notify you very quickly, and that uh, product will lose its connection to the Internet. So there are smarter routers that are coming out on the market that are about a couple hundred dollars, and this will help to alleviate some of the concerns. 
but does the end consumer know about these products? Do they know of the risks? I'm not 100% convinced just yet. I would assume that that would be a pretty smart move for home security companies to be making right now, start bundling in those secure routers with and making it more of a complete package as homes are getting smarter and smarter. And they really have to consider that, especially because I think, again, if you leave things up to uh, individual uh, consumers in the home, I think they just get overwhelmed and confused about how they should protect themselves. But if we know that these companies can go out there, like the, the security companies can then say, okay, we're going to uh, get you a router that allows you to manage and protect all of your smart home devices. I think this is a step where they're adding that value that is absolutely critical because we we know, based on history, that so many hackers are going towards unsecured devices that are, in fact, Internet of Things devices. Whether it's a, a baby monitor or a connected appliance, this is the way that they're getting into your house. Yeah, it's just it both exciting for all those convenient aspects of it, but definitely something that I think, I mean, it's a little scary. I think the average consumer is a little afraid of it. Absolutely. And, and you know what I think is the most alarming uh, concern of mine is that I think oftentimes people will just throw their hands up in the air, especially security experts, and they'll say, okay, you can't use smart home products. Everything is bad. Don't touch them. But we know, and I've known this from covering the technology space for almost two decades, that this is the direction that things are going, especially in the home. These products are going to be bought and used, and more and more consumers are loving them. So it's not a question of saying, hey, don't use them at all. It's a question about hey, what's that step to be able to protect ourselves? Applying this to some of what fraud examiners do, I mean, as consumers' homes are getting smarter and consumer goods are getting more interconnected, I assume that eventually office goods will follow suit if they haven't been following at the same pace. Do you have any ideas of how fraud examiners might be able to use data or how fraudsters actually might be able to utilize those backdoors within their companies. And I think there are risks everywhere around us, whether it's in the home or uh, in, in, in a business advi- uh, environment as well, um, especially when we're talking about connectivity in an office space. We know that offices are also relying on IoT devices and uh, more and more they're also uh, relying on biometrics and uh, um, we see some of these uh, devices, like there's a trend that's just starting right now where some, uh, not many, but a couple of employers have actually asked uh, their employees to uh, implant tiny little chips in their finger uh, that allow those people to have access to computers, to get into um, a secure room, so you don't have to carry around those key cards. So when we're starting to talk about the the future of uh, business and how they are using uh, technology to uh, make themselves more secure, at the same time, I think we see more and more risks to this because all of this technology is also new. One of the biggest arguments with biometrics is no security system's perfect if a hacker were able to access a huge database of biometrics. I mean, that could wreak so much havoc. And at what point kind of does the does your biometrical data get turned over? Does it become the property of your company as opposed to literally your own body? I understand the case where people talk about this being more secure as far as, hey, no one is going to be able to uh, use facial recognition to get into an office space. I mean, it can only be you who goes into that office space or if there's chips in the finger, it can only be you. On the other hand, like you said, um, from a privacy perspective, uh, I think we have major concerns here again about the data and, and who does own that information, just like you alluded to. Would you recommend to people to avoid using biometrics when they can, or do the security measures outweigh, in your opinion? 
In some cases, I'm actually a fan of biometrics, especially when you're talking about things like retina scans or fingerprint ID to get into your personal device. Where I'm not a fan of biometrics is when it comes to the workplace, when all of a sudden you're talking about shifting over uh, the responsibility of your personal identification to a potential employer. To me, that's where things get a little bit messy, and uh, I worry a bit about the future of how your information is going to not only be shared but protected within that context. So I think biometrics can be good, but at the end of the day, I think when it comes to talking about biometrics in the workplace, there still needs to be a lot more work in terms of how how that employer is going to protect its uh, employees and individuals. I know that from our side of things for fraud examiners, we've seen huge growth in fraud examiners using data analytics and especially machine learning to help detect fraud and risk. And uh, I know that we use Benford's law and they've been able to teach machines to look for certain patterns of words that might kind of send up red flags this person is embezzling from the company. And I know that you've recently discussed AI on your podcast. So what type of role do you think AI can play in the future of fraud detection and prevention? I think we're seeing more and more where AI is going to play a role, particularly when we're talking about machine learning. And I know just in terms of some of the research that I've done, at a very basic level, it's things like rules and reputation lists, uh, supervised machine learning, and unsupervised machine learning. And uh, this essentially means that, of course, uh, computers are able to operate at a a much uh, quicker speed than humans are, and also because they're able to uh, gather so much data and analyze so much data so quickly, they're able to make assumptions more quickly, much more quickly than humans can. So in terms of uh, any type of fraud detection, this is absolutely going to be the future. On the flip side of that, I do want to bring something up because at the same time as artificial intelligence is becoming a tool for people who are trying to detect fraud, it's also becoming a tool for the fraudsters uh, because we know that artificial intelligence, particularly with machine learning, can also help to create a profile of an individual and can do some incredible things such as uh, create a video where it looks as though a person is saying words that they aren't actually, uh, they haven't actually said, but just based on the fact that the computer could have access to that person's voice, they can then create a a, a voice exactly like that person to even display within a video. And we're we're seeing more and more that this, again, um, could provide potential issues when it comes to fraud. I hadn't heard of the being able to literally create a video that it sounds like something completely out of a science fiction movie. It is. And I mean, voice forgery is becoming a, a bigger issue than people even realize. And, and we're just starting to see that not just with voice, but also uh, within videos is that uh, if someone has a video of you, for example, and they understand how you speak and how you move, it's becoming easier uh, than ever for a computer to then go and create what is essentially a, a false video where it looks like you're saying something that you never said still early days with this, but at the same time that this technology is being used to fight fight fraudsters, we're seeing examples about how the fraudsters are using it to commit fraud. It's really, really fascinating. In the case of voice or video fraud, what do you think would be the worst case scenario that could come out of someone using that for malicious purposes? Well, I think when we see uh, both voice and video fraud, I think in the near term, what we'll see, especially with voice fraud, is that if there are financial institutions who are relying on your voice to detect um, who you are and to identify you, if we know that a fraudster can easily replicate your voice and say something that uh, sounds exactly like you, that could be a really persistent problem in the financial world. Uh, And when we're talking about uh, the future as far as uh, uh, video fraud, we're seeing more and more how 
easy it would be, you know, five, ten years down the road for potential hackers to go and create a uh, fraudulent video of someone saying something. And, and not only will that uh, cause issues as far as that person's personal reputation, uh, but of course there could be plenty of issues um, with them trying to basically build a profile of an individual on the internet that is not actually true and accurate uh, in terms of uh, representing that person. It's scary. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely scary. And this is pretty much the first time I've heard of it being like, yes, this is a possibility in in the future. Kind of fun to discuss because it's, uh, like you said, it's a little bit like science fiction as far as the future of how both um, uh, people trying to prevent fraud are going to be using this new technology and how fraudsters at the same time are also in the race to use the same technology uh, to commit fraud. So uh, uh, it's a battle and I, I don't think there's a clear winner just yet. It's it's just remarkable to see even the change in obviously technology, but how it relates to fraud in the past two decades or even the past decade and just seeing they're becoming a lot savvier and kind of the fraud fighters racing to to keep up with them and doing a pretty good job, I would say. But it's it's tiring. <laughs> I mean, and imagine, you know, we, we think about fraud, I think, on different levels, especially financial fraud, but um, when you talk about uh, the future of fraud and you think about um, individual cases such as video fraud, uh, imagine that in the political world where all of a sudden you could create a video of a world leader saying something that could provoke uh, another country and lead us into a war. I mean, um, the implications are absolutely massive and I think bigger than any of us ever imagined. Yeah, I, that was actually what immediately sprung to mind when you were talking about that was politicians uh, and how that could be used, yeah, used against them, even for during campaigns by the opposition. Absolutely. And or individuals or, you know, someone has a beef with a, a past employer or, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, I think it's really limitless. But all of a sudden, I think we get into a situation where it used to be that uh, if you were on camera and uh, you were representing yourself, that really was the truth. I mean, that was one of those um, pieces of uh, um, uh, content that people would believe. And I don't know if we're going to be able to um, say the same thing for in terms of the future of uh, video. Um, as far as uh, how some of the technology does allow the fraudsters to uh, operate in malicious ways. It's weird to think that there might be an end to the whole seeing is believing, Maxim. Yeah, absolutely. And these are some pretty heavy questions to get into in terms of the future. And, uh, you know, in that case, you know, what do we believe? Do we go back to just uh, trusting our gut and instincts? Because I don't know what else there is. It's definitely very interesting, this whole new, <laughs> new frontier of technology. You can hear more from Amber at the 2017 ACFE Fraud Conference Canada, October 29th through November 1st in Toronto. Thank you, Amber, for joining us today, and thank you for listening. You can find this episode and more episodes of Fraud Talk in the iTunes store and at acfe.com podcast. This has been Sarah Hoffman, signing off.